If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From knitting coded messages to aid a Belgian intelligence network, to interrogating German ace pilots, women took on a huge variety of intelligence roles during both world wars, as civilians and in uniform. Eleanor Evans spoke to historian Helen Fry recently to discuss her new book, which delves into the archives to unearth these often overlooked stories. Helen, it's great to be talking with you, and you've written extensively on espionage and with particular focus on the 20th century world wars. Turning to your latest, the clue might well be in the title for readers, Women in Intelligence, The Hidden History of Two World Wars. I wonder if we can start by hearing from you on this title. What can readers expect? Oh, readers can expect some incredibly exciting stories. During the research, I was so inspired by the women who became not only spies, but they were running and founding spy networks. They were being dropped behind enemy lines. They were code breaking. They were becoming experts in their field, whether they're working for MI5 or other branches of military intelligence or MI6. Really, really extraordinary stories. There are some extraordinary stories, but as you point out many occasions in the book, these very real, very remarkable histories might have been masked by popular culture's portrayal of female spies, the femme fatale of honey traps, etc. Can we go beyond that, explain what you're doing with these histories? 
Yes, most famously, Matahari is the femme fatale, the female spy who seduces others to get secrets. Well, in reality, that's not actually what we now know of women who served in intelligence. And the Matahari legacy, which just sort of explodes after she's executed by the French in 1917, films after the war, and that has eclipsed what is an amazing legacy by the women hidden across these two world wars, and including in the 1920s and 30s. For me, the real picture is awe-inspiring, and it's far more exciting than that veneer of the seductress. We've got to get away from that. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And I'm really excited to jump into some of these stories with you. I wonder if we can start with Edith Cavell, perhaps a name familiar with some listeners. She's undoubtedly one more of the well-known stories in your book. But for listeners who aren't so familiar, can we hear from you on Cavell and what you've uncovered about her? Edith Cavell was a British nurse. She was working in Belgium from 1902. And when war broke out in 1914, she decided not to leave Brussels and to stay there and work and to help wounded soldiers, French and British soldiers. She helped smuggle Belgians out so they could fight with their king in exile. And traditionally, there's been this debate on whether she was a spy. And some come down on the line that, no, no, she's helping our guys get out. She's not involved in espionage. So I knew I would have to answer that question once and for all in the book, either way. And the most exciting thing for me was to discover the evidence that she absolutely was a spy. So alongside the rescue work, she is you know, running this incredible intelligence network for the British. She's actually founded it herself with a Belgian architect. So she is a spy mistress and recruiting her agents. She's not actually recruiting the nurses around her. She's using other Belgians living in their occupied country who want to do a part. And they know that the intelligence that they can send out to the British will actually make a difference. So for me, that legacy that she leaves behind is so much greater than, you know, what we've come to understand of her until now. And importantly, she goes on to inspire, not only in the First World War, but the Second World War, a whole generation of other women who would take up similar work. She encouraged, in some way, because of her sacrifice, because, as you know, she was shot at dawn in October 1915, that sacrifice she made, the defiance actually inspired a whole new generation of women. And even today, I think, women are finding her story inspirational. Indeed. And as you say, the idea that she wasn't any more removed from danger from this risk, the sacrifice that she was undertaking, it really highlights the roles more broadly that women were assuming in both of these conflicts. Absolutely. The risks, whether they were agents parachuted behind enemy lines, as we think of the young women in France and actually other parts, they were parachuted into Belgium and parts of the Balkans, incredibly dangerous. And so many of them didn't live to see the end of the war. But the women, alongside their male colleagues, taking risks behind enemy lines to smuggle messages with intelligence out their contribution is as risky. But as I make the point in the book, the women are invisible. They're really invisible in two world wars. I mean, the the agents in France were compromised, they were betrayed. But by and large, the women working in intelligence roles 
were invisible. The Germans didn't really suspect that women would be undertaking intelligence work. And if they're cycling across the countryside, or they're just going to the bakery, or they're going to visit relatives, but actually they're probably smuggling, well they were, smuggling the messages out to their next contact, as a dead letter box. I mean, I love all that kind of thing. Yes, me too. I wanted to ask about a remarkable network, La Dame Blanche, and particularly about knitting. (laughs) Oh yes, the knitting. Yeah, this is one of the most extraordinary stories, really. You couldn't make it up. In fact, in Belgium, there's brave women. They were from the age of about 18 into their 80s. And they almost become the new front line because they're sat outside their cottages and their homes and they are watching the rail network. For the Germans to be able to move their troops to the front line, they have to cross Belgium or Luxembourg. And the way they move those troops and their armaments, their reinforcements, is by train. So if you could look at those trains that are moving, what's on them, what's being ferried across, and the women actually coded into their knitting what they were seeing. (laughs) So what you have is that they're kind of innocently knitting their scarves and their jumpers. And eventually the jumpers get chucked over the wire because the Germans have constructed this huge, long, about 450 kilometres in total, electrified wire. You can't pass in and out. It's very difficult. Although some agents had ingenious ways to do that. But by and large, they had to chuck the jumper or the scarf over the wire. And that would make it back to the British, where some intelligence officer would have to decode. But you see, you could tell by the sheer level of troops being moved in one direction across the train network, where the next big offence or the big push by the Germans could be. And if your troops aren't there ready, make a difference to the outcome of that battle. That's very in very simplistic terms. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. No, I think that's a great point to bring out that, as you say, the women who are gathering this intelligence, they're eavesdropping, they're passing on coded messages, that this intelligence has very vital ramifications in both wars, doesn't it? It does, because the network starts up again in the Second World War, and there's a similar network collecting intelligence in France known as the Alliance or Noah's Ark, because each of the agents was given the name of an animal. And that was run by Marie-Madeleine Foucard, who was working for the Secret Intelligence Service, MI6. Claude Dancy, who was running her, didn't realise initially 
because she was working under a code name POS55 or POS55. So he thought POS55 was a male agent. It didn't occur to him that a woman, French woman, would actually be running this whole network, this incredible intelligence network. And then, of course, finally one day he does meet her. And that's a turning point for him, certainly in his career, because he recognises that it is possible and okay for women to be sent behind the lines, to be working behind the lines. Because, you know, he was dead against sending female agents behind the lines, far too dangerous. They couldn't be protected by the Geneva Convention. But even Claude Dancy, deputy head of MI6, changes his mind and realises the sheer value of women. And if I could say at this point, there's another key figure in the history of military intelligence, Airy Neve. Many listeners will remember Airy Neve was the first British officer to successfully escape from Colditz and make it back to the UK, that impenetrable fortress. Well, he survived. And he actually worked for a branch of military intelligence known as MI9. And in its secret section, he was running agents, including female agents, behind the lines. And he wrote to the Belgian authorities in exile and said, we should be using women because they are, he didn't use the term invisible, but effectively in his letter he was saying, they are invisible to the Germans. So he was a huge advocate and believed in the talent of women. A talent that's really readily available and evidence throughout your book. We, we'll go, I'm sure, into the eavesdropping and espionage in a little while further. But I really wanted to pick up on the role of women as interrogators, because this was really, really a fascinating element to me. When did this begin and in what capacity were they working? Well, you have the first known female interrogator of MI5 is Jane Sismore. When she's married, she's Jane Archer, so some people might know her by that name. And she goes on to interrogate the first Soviet defector, Walter Kravitsky. And she's trained as a barrister in the 1920s, working full-time for MI5. So she's a sort of hidden history which has started to emerge. But beyond that, in the uniformed forces, Army, Air, Naval Intelligence, the first use of female interrogators was in 1941. And when I discovered that, because I interviewed one of the veterans, she was 101, (laughs) interviewed her, and she said, we were the interrogators. And I thought, oh my goodness. And she was correct when she said they were the first and only known female interrogators of the Second World War. And famously, Vera Atkins, who sent the agents into France, she was part of F section. So a lot of people know about her today. At the end of the war, she undertook some of the most fearsome interrogations of those die-hard Nazi war criminals because she wanted to find out the fate of every single one of her agents that hadn't made it back. And so you see this sort of talent and the MI9 files say the right kind of woman makes a good an interrogator as a man. That was the belief, that was the mindset at the time, that they could use the women, they had skills that would probably, and they did, destabilise the German prisoners you know, in walk two women to interrogate them. Very, very unnerving. Yes, I think that idea of the sort of, you know, masculine energy expecting to be, you know, met by other men and then being confronted by women, you can understand how that's a little bit unsettling. It is because they're sort of very macho and ready to sort of stand up and just be uncompromising and they're not going to give any intelligence away. And suddenly in walk these two women, and they're completely thrown and soon distracted. I mean, Evelyn Baron was the interrogator I 
interviewed. She was in naval intelligence. And she said, you know, it did completely disable us. And we didn't do anything. There was nothing nasty was going to happen. But it did just diffuse a lot, not only of the emotion, but psychologically it did something to the German prisoners. I might also add Air Intelligence began to use female interrogators as well at one of its secret sites, Latham House, which was just near Amersham, Chesham. And Carol Baring-Gould, bless her, of Air Intelligence, she goes on to interrogate Hitler's ace pilot, Adolf Galland. Now, we think of everything that's been written about Adolf Galland, but who knew that his primary interrogation was by a woman and she was just in her early 20s. And of course, he thought he'd charmed her. You know, just wonderful. Again, it's a psychological approach. Yes, it's really fascinating. I, I love hearing about your experiences talking to these women as well. That's such a wonderful part of the piece. So from what you're saying, women were vital across the piece, collecting intelligence and interrogating, doing all of this remarkable work. What are the factors that have led this work to be so invisible even now? One of the key threads through the book is this whole idea of official secrecy. And I think that's simply the answer, that I'm not sure that I could have written this book 20 years ago. Not all the files were then that I worked on were then declassified. So a large part of their legacy has been hidden by official secrecy. But now whole rafts of files have come out, war office, foreign office, naval intelligence, whatever, right across MI5 files. We need our historians to start trawling these because when you start shifting paper, to use uh, that image, just literally going through the files, I accidentally found these gems and that's when I realised I should be putting these stories together because if you'd asked me four or five years ago, I would have said, no, no, I'm not going to write a book on the women. Plenty of historians writing about women. But these hidden gems that actually are part of an amazing tapestry of women in civilian roles, MI5, Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, and in uniform services, I mean, just extraordinarily. They're doing a lot of analytical work. They're analysing intelligence. They're collecting intelligence. They are absolutely crucial in the early part of the 20th century. Absolutely. And you pick up on the challenges that met many of these women after wars were over, after they were demobbed from wartime intelligence, that they were often expected to return to traditional roles, despite having had these advances or the, these you know, experiences. Can we hear more about that? From what I've researched, it looks like that's true primarily of women in uniform, there were not so many women in uniform in the First World War, but when the war came to an end, yes, they were demobilised. But if they're working for MI5 or they're working for MI6, MI6 stationing their agents and officers abroad, these so-called secretaries that I talk about, you know, they carry on beyond the First World War. There's no reason to discontinue their intelligence work. And there's a thread, a whole raft of women in both MI5 and MI6 who become experts from this early period and they are used for vital work in the Second World War. Many of them get taken up for work with the Special Operations Executive, the SOE. And so certainly it's true, again, at the end of the Second World War, women in uniform, certainly if they married, they had children, they would have to leave. And they were, of course, demobilised 
46, 47, and then they go back to civilian life. But it's certainly not true of the civilian agencies, our MI5 and our MI6. Okay, thank you. You mentioned SOE there. I wanted to ask about one particular story, Baroness Mary Misk. So her story was one I really hoped we could zero in a little, perhaps one that's beyond the stories of SOE people may have heard before. Yes, she was actually British, married to a Hungarian diplomat. And she took great risk, actually. She was nominally under SOE, but she was actually... I believe, from her contacts and her links, she was working for MI6. She's working out of Istanbul. She's going in and out of Austria. She knows the region. And she becomes really important in trying to link up with the resistance groups within Austria. Because if you can imagine, Austria is completely surrounded by enemy. You know, there's no way, but very difficult to get in. We did parachute agents in behind enemy lines, but very, very difficult. In the Balkans, there was a lot of betrayals. The resistance didn't always, you know, trust our agents. And amidst this, this feisty woman doesn't tell her husband (laughs) that she's working for our intelligence services and she's in and out. But eventually she gets arrested and has a pretty nasty time at the hands of the Gestapo. But she is, as far as we can tell, the only spy swap of the Second World War. She must have been so valuable that she's actually swapped for a German spy. Another testament to the work that women were doing, and Baroness Mary Misk in particular, I would urge people to to pick up Helen's book, if only for this story. I, I thought it was fantastic. I also wanted to ask about MI5 using girl guides. That I found really unusual. I mean, I wasn't expecting to find that actually in the 1920s and beyond. Yes. And they use scouts as well. So they use girl guides, you know, young 15, 16 year olds who would sort of run around the office, largely currying paperwork. They obviously had to be bound by secrecy. And I've got a section on them you know, and that they should be properly treated. There was a consciousness of their young age and there were safeguards in place to make sure they weren't overworked and that they had a proper structure to the the work that they were doing, the correct number of hours and that they were fed properly. All these kind of social issues, absolutely fascinating. I'm not sure if that's ever come out in the history of MI5 before. No, I I mean, I hadn't heard of it. And yeah, it was wonderful to read about. In a conversation about women and intelligence, it'd probably be remiss not to talk about Bletchley Park. I'm sure our listeners will be familiar with this vast intelligence centre. But can you take us a bit more into the varied roles of women in this space? Yeah, Bletchley Park being the most famous contribution of women that we think of today. We mustn't forget, they had around 10,000, just under 10,000 workforce at Bletchley Park. Two-thirds of those, around 8,000, were women. And very quickly, they are doing unbelievable things. They become experts, as do women across all all other aspects of intelligence. In the book, they become experts, they're co-breakers. Betty Webb famously goes on to crack the Japanese codes you know, these amazing minds of the women that were used. And a big shout out for the director from 1942, Sir Edward Travis, who again recognised the importance of scaling up 
the women, the role of women. And he went on a recruitment drive. And that's where we get the most recruitment of women to Bletchley Park from 1942. And I shine a light on some of those senior female co-breakers that we haven't heard of before. And I think that's terribly important. Obviously, you can't cover everyone. You know, that would take several volumes and several books. But I wanted to shine a light on the women that have been forgotten in the Bletchley Park story. And you mentioned you've spoken to some of them through the course of your work. You've spoken to a lot of women who've worked in these various roles. Did you find any commonalities with how they regarded their own work, how they felt about these efforts and how they'd been remembered or not? I find that with any veterans, male or female, they are not concerned about their heroism or what they've achieved. They just think they were doing what they had to do. So none of the women I interviewed had a sense that they needed to be recognised. They're quite shy, actually, and almost reluctant to talk. And it's not just because of the secrecy, because if they know the files have been released, some of them will talk, but they don't like the light to be shone on them. So they're very humble in that respect. But in terms of the military intelligence, and that includes air intelligence and naval intelligence, all kinds of secret sites, including the women at RAF Medmanham, where they were analysing the aerial photography. They're incredibly interesting jobs. I think of all of the areas of intelligence during wartime, that was one of the most interesting. And we do know that at Bletchley Park, sometimes the women, well, they knew that their work was important, but they couldn't connect as to how. And there was a lot of routine, mundane work, as there was in the basement of the Admiralty, in London, women working there in, in really bad conditions with their male colleagues. But seeing the bigger picture doesn't always happen within their lifetime. And that's, again, down to secrecy. A lot of this could not be declassified. So that's it's a shame on one level. But of course, I understand why things need to be secret. And you know things can't always be released. Yes. And with that in mind, it's wonderful to see these women getting a light shone on them in your book and much other good work that's happening and is going to happen in the future, which is excellent. I wonder if we can perhaps begin to wrap up by hearing from you on any women of your favourites that I haven't perhaps mentioned yet, we haven't had a chance to cover. There are a couple of areas that would be nice for us to touch on as we finish. The model makers at RAF Medmanham, that's a Danesfield house near Marlow in Buckinghamshire, they used artists, men and women, but the female ones, I mean, incredible. They're working on these models, these to scale, of all of the commando raids. So the commandos would be briefed before any major raid, but they would have this visual model so that when they landed, they wouldn't be surprised by a telecommunication mast there, a hill there, a bush there. I mean, the level of detail, extraordinary. And General Eisenhower, the American commander, said, these model makers are worth a 100 men. Are extraordinary. He understood the value of these model makers. And I have a photograph of one of them in the book. It's one of my favourite photographs. And the second area, just to briefly touch on, are the so-called secretaries of MI6, who during the 1920s and 30s are working out of British passport offices, and they are helping, well, on an equal level, actually, their MI6 chief of station, who in this period was always male, as far as we can tell, and they were running spy networks. They were not 
secretaries. I just love that. That's all been hidden by official secrecy. They're using invisible ink, they're agent handlers, they're becoming experts on Austria, Czechoslovakia, the Far East, the Middle, whatever. They are becoming experts and they are, go on to be incredibly valuable because of their knowledge during the Second World War. And our listeners can pick up in the book some of the unbelievable things those women go on to do that are absolutely necessary for the success, as in one case, of SOE. Absolutely. Such vital work there. And there's so much more of it in the book. I wonder if it's worth finishing on perhaps a thought from you or a point to make that this isn't sort of indivisible from any work that men were doing. It's not women on one side and men on the other, of course. Mm. And and I wonder if we could just leave our listeners with a sense of that and the the full picture and how women were vital to it. It transpires that, in fact, women were absolutely vital to the whole intelligence picture. They are doing roles and work that, you know, really smash the boundaries of our preconceived ideas. And I'm really careful not to divorce them from their male backdrop. That for me, this book is about naming as many of the women as we can, and those, of course, that we can't name, but to put their legacy on record. But I don't want to divorce that from the wider picture of the Second World War. It's just that that's been the missing history. And going forwards, I'd like this to be much more integrated and not separated along gender lines. So for me, it's about recovering their legacy, understanding it, and then feeding that into the wider narrative and to appreciate just what our women and men achieve for our freedom and our democracy. Yes, it's a wonderful book and it fulfills this mission so well. The book is Women in Intelligence, The Hidden History of Two World Wars. And thank you so much, Helen, for talking to us about your book today. That was Helen Fry. Women in Intelligence, The Hidden History of Two World Wars is published by Yale University Press and is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer-Ard.